Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The experts in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Back in the early 2010s, there was a group of pastors in the city of Denver that got together, pooling their churches, pooling their churches' resources for the purpose of serving their neighborhood and their community. And so what they thought about pretty early on, by the way, this is a group of about 23 pastors, uh, 40,000 congregants uh, represented, lots of finances. They got in their minds early on that they should talk to city officials, right, and hear what they had to say, like what, what they can learn and uh, do accordingly. And they really had two questions that they were asking each of these officials. What is your dream for the city? And how might uh, the churches be of help to you? Well, eventually they got to sit down with the mayor of Denver and ask these questions. They had sent the questions uh, ahead of time to the mayor so he could think about it. And when the mayor got to the room of all these pastors, he sat down and he began by pulling out a little piece of paper and reading a list of things that he uh, dreams, uh, dreamt of for, for the city. He read things like uh, that no child would be left behind, that crime rates would drop, that human trafficking would be eradicated, the poor would be taken care of. And then he took this piece of paper, folded it back up, put it in his pocket, and he said, guys, look, we've been doing a lot of programs We've constantly been evaluating and reevaluating all these different things that we're trying to do. And really, we, we've realized it's come down to this. And I want to quote this for you. He said, the majority of the issues we face could be drastically reduced and even eliminated if we can figure out to, uh, how to become a community of great neighbors. And this uh, Denver pastor who was at this meeting and telling, telling me about this story said that all the pastors in this moment kind of looked around at each other kind of sheepishly. Because here was the city of, uh, of, of Denver's mayor essentially preaching truth to a group of preachers. And I was just like, oh, I guess that makes sense. That's what Jesus told us to do. 
And he said in that moment, they actually felt quite convicted. They were talking about it later. They felt convicted because here they had been like pursuing this dream of pulling all their resources, doing something really big and special. These, these programs, which by the way, it's not to knock that. It's wonderful things that can come about from things like that. But really at the end of the day, this, this mayor from Denver in a non-facetious way, it wasn't as if he was going, guys, you know what you should be doing, right? He was just saying the data shows it. And at the end of the day, they realized, oh, it really comes down to what Jesus said all along, and that is being a good neighbor. <laughs> like, maybe we should focus on that. Use these resources towards that end, but we got to really focus. Look, if, if that was true in the early 2010s, how much more true is that today? The importance of being a good neighbor. I mean, coming out of this pandemic with all the hurts, all the pain, all the strife and division that's out there. I mean, this is needed all the more. And how much more today is it a challenge to be a good neighbor? You think about all the obstacles, both external and internal, that get in the way of that for us. And who actually is our neighbor in, these, in this day and age? I was kind of talking about it with one of our staff members this week, and he's like, I don't even, like, what does that even mean? 2022. It's a fair question. Who's our neighbor? And, and how do we be good neighbors? Well, Jesus, in this incredible story, this parable of the Good Samaritan, tells us. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in and unpack it. Uh, Father, uh, we often pray as, as a church for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done. But often we shirk our part in it. Uh, we often shirk your call to live it out and join you and bringing it about. So Father, in these times especially of so much pain, hurt, strife, and division, Lord, would you help us be what you call us to be, and that is good neighbors. Lord, we, we need your help in this. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so in this text, Jesus tells us the who, uh, who is our neighbor, and how we are to be good neighbors. But the occasion for this wonderful teaching, very famous teaching of the Good Samaritan. The occasion for this was an expert of the law came asking a question of Jesus. And his question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In fact, we're even told that he came, quote, trying to test Jesus. Uh, and that's because this was a question that was being kicked around a lot in Jesus' day and age. In fact, Jesus himself, if you read other gospel accounts of his life and ministry, you'll see that he was often asked this question on various occasions by various different types of people. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus would respond in various different ways. On this occasion, he kind of threw the question back at the guy. He said, essentially, well, you're an expert of the law. What do you think? How, how do you read it? And as, as if that guy heard all he needed to hear just to jump on and said, oh, I got this one. I can answer this one. And he quoted the text we looked at a few weeks ago. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And, quoting another place in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, that's right. Go do that and you'll live. And then we're told that this guy says in order to justify himself, it's an interesting little phrase there, he went on to say, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? Do tell. Who's my neighbor? Now, what Bible scholars tell us is that when it says he uh, was trying to justify himself, we can't know for sure what exactly that meant for him, but it's pretty clear. I mean, we have a good sense. And it's probably as if this guy was asking this question in order to get a specific answer so he can go, check, good, I've done this. 
I'm in God's favor. I'm good to go. Probably he was looking for a very specific answer for something like Jesus to say, oh, the person you live next to. And you know, the friends that you hang out with regularly, those are your neighbors. And the guy would, was, would, in anticipating this would be like, oh good, I'm doing that. Check. But instead, Jesus, as he's wont to do, launches into a wonderful story. Now, do you know any people in your life who are just incredibly wise? And when they just go into that wise mode, like you just gleam on, you know, whatever's coming, it's going to be really, maybe they, they're going to tell a story, personal example or whatever. I have a few in my life and I just like, I'm looking for like a notepad. I mean, with Jesus, all the more. Because it's one of the most famous of all the parables. But Jesus, who is my neighbor? Well, there was a man who was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho who was met a group of robbers. Now, what's really interesting, uh, right off the bat, is Jesus very skillfully, very masterfully teaching something to this expert of the law and, and through him to us. Because remember, this guy is essentially asking, if we understand this clearly, Jesus, give me a specific person. Who specifically is my neighbor? And Jesus, with the first few words, says, a man is going from this city to that city. It's like, give me a specific answer. And Jesus like, I'm going to give you a nondescript man was going. You find, I mean, Jesus was just the first couple words. It's incredible. He's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. Probably a Jewish man because of, you know, the, the city of the city he was traveling. He was attacked by robbers on, on this road. We know that this road was exceedingly dangerous then and for a good time while after. We even have evidence from the ancient historian Josephus who says that you, you didn't want to travel this road alone, let alone with any valuables on you. So this detail of this guy running into robbers and having all this stuff happen to him uh, wouldn't have been you know, startling to Jesus' listeners. This, this man, this Jewish man, no but doubt, was heading from Jerusalem to Jericho, and all the way he was attacked by robbers, quote, stripped of his clothes, beaten, and left half dead. Okay, so that's the setup. And then Jesus goes on to say, then a priest, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Okay, to contemporize this, think like a pastor. Okay, I don't like to do this, but think me in this situation. It starts to convict my heart even as I say that. Then a priest happened to be going down the same road and he sees the guy and does nothing. In fact, we're given the detail that he walked on the other side of the road from this guy. Whether he crossed the road to do that or either he just stayed, who knows, but that's the detail we're given. A priest happened to be going on the same road and walked along on the other side of the road. When Cindy and I first moved into the Silicon Valley, <clears throat> years ago. Uh, we moved when she was eight months pregnant, which made moving quite interesting. Um, and we met a, our, our neighbors, a couple that were also uh, pregnant, a few months pregnant. And it was really awesome. I think he took pity on me, the, the husband, and just started helping me move boxes. So we started to get to know each other by moving boxes from the truck inside up the staircase and all that sort of stuff. Well, after a while of helping me move, he eventually asked the question, so what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And he was like mid-moving. He was like, 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 there's like no like hiding what he had just done. He's like, and I'm sitting there thinking like, oh boy, where are we going with this? And after a little while, he said, you know, I, I just got to share. I've had a really bad experience with the church. I said, oh, tell me about that. He'd grown up Catholic and he started sharing all these stories about how it just had had a real 
negative impact on his life. And he just was trying to stay away and sorry for, sorry for being startled, but that just kind of brought up things when I heard you're a pastor kind of thing. And one of the stories he shared though, was when he was going to mass one day and he was evidently a little late <clears throat> with his family and they were in the parking lot trying to rush and get into the mass. And about that time, he, he saw that the priest that was delivering the message that day was also, also happened to be late and was coming in like really quickly into this parking lot. And really sadly, tragically, like rammed another car. Like so this priest rammed another car getting into his spot and just kind of got parked. The priest got out, my, my buddy was telling me, got out, checked the car, saw that there was indeed, you know, a good deal of damage, which my buddy could see from his vantage point way away. It's a lot of damage. Saw it, did nothing, went inside, gave the sermon. And my buddy used that, like he said, I remember that. He's like, I mean, I understand he was in a rush and all that, but that was, he was the priest. Of course, that's kind of what Jesus is saying here with this story. As he says, you know, the priest, the obvious point he's making is the person you would think in our society, Jesus was saying, the person you would think would have some sort of sense of moral obligation to stop and help did not. And then he passed along the other side of the road. And next he says, verse 32, a Levite came by. So if priests worked in the temple and their main or their, you know, most special duty was to offer sacrifices in that sort of sense, the Levites uh, were the ones who assisted in the maintenance of the temple and its, and its order. In other words, what Jesus was doing here in first talking about the priest, but then the Levite is he was saying, okay, if the, the priest didn't stop by, the most religious, the most person you think would have the moral obligation, and then here comes the Levite who you think would be next in line to do it. Right? And the whole idea, of course, in this masterful story that he's sharing is, well, okay, maybe the priest had a bad day, but the Levite surely is going to come through. But no, Levite doesn't do anything, doesn't stop, sees the man there, but walks and passes along on the other side. Of course, Jesus, what, what Jesus is doing, if you start to take in where we are just at this point in the story, start to help us look at our own hearts and understand, boy, if we would think that there'd be certain people out there who would be the ones to stop and help, and they're not even stopping and helping, what does that say about our own selves? Uh, there was a study done years ago by two Princeton University psychologists that was centered on this very biblical story of the, of the Good Samaritan. And what they did was recruit a bunch of seminary students that they assigned different topics to give a Bible talk on. Half of the students, they gave the story of the Good Samaritan. Half of the students, they gave just various biblical topics. And then when they came on the day to give their talk, they pulled them all aside and one by one said, okay, we need you to go give the talk on the other side of the campus. See where this is going? Go to the other side of the campus. And with half of those people, they said, okay, you, uh, have, you have a few minutes, but you need to get over there. With the other half, they said, okay, you need to get over there. You're already late. So, so get over there quickly. And of course, what they did was they planted a little actor on the way from that spot to where they were going to give the talk, who was in need and asking for help. And they wanted to observe what these seminaries, oh boy, I would not want to have been a seminary student. You know what they found? Okay, of course the thought was, okay, for those who had been preparing and thinking about and getting ready to talk on the Good Samaritan, that they would probably be inclined to stop and help, right? And those who are not, maybe a little less so. Uh, what actually happened was that had essentially no bearing at all on, the, uh, on their findings, sadly. Uh, the greatest indicator by far whether or not they actually stopped to help was whether or not they were rushed. And their conclusion 
was a person's beliefs are, are less important in guiding their actions than their context, than their circumstances. And it's like when Jesus is sharing the story of the priest and Levi, it's, you, can, you and I can quickly go, well, that's okay, bad on them. But Jesus is saying, well, you need to think about that. We understand this. It would have been very shocking for these first century Jews to hear this story. Because, I mean, they thought highly of the priest. They thought highly of the Levites. So Jesus was obviously doing something quite shocking and, and provocative. But that paled in comparison to what he next did. I don't know about you, but if I had been he- listening and hearing that story, I think I probably would have been anticipating, okay, third time's the charm. Not the priest, not the Levite. Okay, maybe, okay, next is going to be the commoner, okay? Moving down in religious, you know, the most religious, next religious, and then, okay, the Jewish commoner, he's going to come through. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. A Samaritan comes along, and he helps. And we just need to understand, some of you know this, if you've thought about this before, the Samar- for Jesus to lift up a Samaritan as the model example, what it means to be a good neighbor, would have been, it would have been scandalous, in their ears. It would be so shocking because Jews and Samaritans and, and vice versa absolutely despised one another back then. Like just absolutely despised one another. In fact, I came across a finding. There's like this old rabbinic uh, rule that stated back then that if you, it, it is to, to Jewish men, if you happen to come across a Gentile, meaning non-Jewish woman, in the act of birth, which, you know, I guess that's an everyday thing. You have to have a rule for it. But if you happen to come across a Gentile, non-Jewish woman in the act of birth, not to help her, lest you help a Gentile come into this world. And yet often they despise Samaritans even more. Racially, ideologically, religiously. I was trying to think of a contemporary example. The best I could come up with is like a far left activist and a far right activist, each one of the other, the guy on the side of the road or the person helping, helping each other. It's like, think about that. With the rhetoric that's being used today, you think that would happen? That's what Jesus is saying when the Samaritan, when he lifted up the Samaritan as, as the example here. It would have been absolutely shocking, even to the point, I'm almost certain, if you, if you think about it, when Jesus was sharing the story, I'm, I'm almost, I just envision the people hearing his story just at this point, just like starting to like, you know, not to know what to do with themselves. Probably looking at the ground, shuffling around, maybe even clenched fist, yeah, fists because they're just so, oh, he's talking about a Samaritan 2,000 years ago. What Jesus is doing here is helping us understand who our neighbor is. And if there's anything he's saying here, it's whomever the Lord puts across our life path that we can help and we can serve, we can care for. Emphasizing whomever. And so let me ask a few questions just to let this kind of sink in, just to mull this over with you. For whom might you be tempted? Metaphorically, or heaven forbid, literally, for whom might you be tempted to cross the other side of the road because of? For whom might you be tempted to avoid just giving them aid or assistance for who they are? Could it be someone for how they look? Could it be someone because of their particular political views? Their ideology? Their lifestyle choices? Their economic standing? I mean... 
I've shared this illustration a while back, but I think it's so helpful in terms of coming to grips with this. I used to work for a ministry, an outreach uh, called Young Life. So work, it's, it's reaching out to high school students. It's a wonderful group, wonderful organization, very loving and doing wonderful things in the community. But one of the things we do as Young Life leaders is go on to high school campuses. This is my old high school campus and do what they call contact work. So you show up and just cold turkey, try to get to know high school students in the hopes of becoming friends and telling them about Jesus in a very non-pressure, invitational sort of way. These are Some of these guys actually knew because I had been a student there, all, all this sort of stuff. So we go on to campus and do that. So at one point, <clears throat> our head leader got all of us leaders together, and he, we were just kind of doing a team meeting. And he said, all right, guys, I, I want to do an exercise with you. I want everybody to just close your eyes and imagine you're on the high school campus. Just imagine you're there, all right? Everybody's eyes closed, all right, you're there. Now, picture in your mind who you see. What students do you see? Like, what are they doing? What are their interests? Just think about that for a little bit, then we'll share together. So we did that for a few minutes, and then he said, all right, does anybody want to share? And I was like, oh, yeah, I saw the athletes. And I saw kids playing basketball and throwing, you know, the baseball around. And, you know, they were thinking about the next class, but they were really thinking about their next game. And, you know, I just kind of went on and went around the corner. Every leader kind of shared who they saw. He said, all right, great, great. The head leader said, everybody close your eyes again. Okay, I want you to imagine you're back on campus. Only this time... Picture in your mind who you did not see first time around. And once he asked that, I, I knew the, the exercise had done its work in my heart. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's a lot of people I didn't see. A lot of kids I didn't see. A lot of kids I'd walk by regularly at that point to go say hi to the athletes. Because Now, I don't want to knock the, the fact of like, hey, well, I could you know, strike up a conversation with athletes a little bit more naturally and all that sort of stuff. But the point was clear. It's like, man, if the Lord calls us to love and care for people around us, we can't just be blind to people. And it's really easy to do that. I know that is true for me. So for whom might you be tempted to walk on the other side from. And then the second question is, for what reasons might you be tempted to walk on the other side from the street? You know, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't give us the details for why the priest and Levite go all along their way without helping. Could have been any number of reasons. And actually some quote-unquote reasonable reasons, right? I mean, the guy had just been robbed by robbers on a very dangerous road and they're out there alone. It's like, who's to say they're not still out there? Stopping and helping, that makes you vulnerable may have some, something to get to. For what reasons might you have been tempted to walk in the other side? I'll confess with you here. It's like, I, I feel like for me, one of the top reasons, if not the top reason for, for why I struggle with this is because of time and energy. If you've been here a while, you know I've been out there coaching on the Little League field. And you also know that I've complained a little bit about coaching on the Little League field. I love being out there because I love the sport. I love being out there with my little guy. Not so little anymore kind of thing. Um, it's just fun with the boys, you know, in the community, all that sort of stuff. But it's like two nights a week of practice, a game on Saturday, probably another game in addition to that most weeks. And it's like all the preparation, all the conversations that are happening on the side, all that sort of stuff. Like in addition to all the other stuff, you know, I got on my plate, I, you can see where, how I start to complain. And all along the while, Cindy, of course, is the one hearing my complaint. She's the one very uh, understandably and lovingly saying, but David, don't you think God could use this? Couldn't God be using this? I guess so. So I go back out there and all that sort of thing, right? And then I find out a week or two ago that there's like four or so of them from this team that have signed up for kids camp and I'm just like equal parts excited and equal parts convicted. 
Oh. And, you know, I'm out there coaching, but Cindy's up there in the stands developing relationships. It allows her opportunity where she's in her sweet spot. And then we have friends visiting, even from out of town. They're meeting some of these friends. And we're talking about how they got to meet each other after the game when everybody's just hanging out. And it's just, it's just a collective thing where it's everybody's coming around and neighboring in a way. I mean, one person literally yesterday said out on the field, like, she doesn't have community. That's her community out there. Time and energy, that's one of the reasons why. I mean, what, what reasons might you have? I mean, the, I mean, look, just sticking with time and energy. Well, here we are in, the, in Silicon Valley. You can't make it here too long without, you know, <laughs> having demands on your schedule and all that sort of stuff. So with whom might you be tempted to walk on the other side? And for what reasons might you be tempted on the other side? Jesus answers the who question. Who question is, uh, who our neighbor is, is whomever he puts before us in our life that we can help, love, care, serve for. Next, he moves into the how. Okay? He gives us, I believe, at least three ways the, the good Samaritan models being a good neighbor for us. Number one, we see the Samaritan was generous in empathy. Look at verse 33. But the Samaritan, you know, so unlike the priest and Levite, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, I feel like this might be a bit of a translation bummer because um, I think sometimes, not always, this word can be to take pity on someone, can feel like a condescending thing, like, oh, I will come from, from on high to help you. That's not what the word here means. Maybe a better translation, at least as we're thinking about it now, could be to have compassion for this guy. The word actually literally means to feel, to have such empathy for the other person that you are essentially feeling it on your inside. And that's what the, the word means. Uh, this last week, the Warriors played two games. By the way, go Warriors, going to the finals. It's pretty exciting. Um, but the, the first game this week was an interesting one as, as far as the pregame uh, press conference goes. Not press conference. This is a place where the reporters come and ask the questions. And usually these pregame you know, uh, events, the reporters are asking questions like, okay, coach, you know, what's your game plan tonight? Uh, who's injured? Who you who are you playing? Uh, what do you think about the other team? Like that's that's what these events are almost always. And yet Steve Kerr, head coach of the Warriors, came out this week, sat down, and said, "Guys, I'm not talking any basketball at this thing." And it was the same day as the shooting in Uvalde. He's like, "I I, I can't do it, guys." And he you could just you could just feel. I was watching on my little phone. You could just feel through his voice through through just his countenance that he was just feeling something and he just at one point he's saying he's saying just to everybody he's just like guys we cannot and he was like hitting the hitting the table if you've seen this he's like we cannot become numb to this we cannot become numb to this and then he said this he says i need everybody when you think of uvaldi i need you to think of your kids or if you're an auntie and uncle, you need to think of your, your nephews and nieces. I need you to think of your kids. We can't become numb to this. I don't know if you know this, but Coach Steve Kerr, uh, his dad was shot and killed by terrorists when he was a little guy. So he doesn't have to search deep to feel, to have empathy. The Samaritan came across this guy who was essentially his enemy and said, I got to help this guy. Do you notice the command? It's worth thinking about. It's not just, the command is not just love your neighbor. The, the command is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The Samaritan in Jesus' story is like, you know what? This guy might be my enemy, but I can't leave him there. 
I wouldn't want him to leave me there. Empathy is feeling, and if, if nothing else, it's kind of trying to put ourselves in, our, in, in their shoes. Okay, how do I? I think oh, for a lot of us, this might be the struggle. I and mean, we might have to ask the Lord to help us because we're coming out of the pandemic. We're tired. You probably don't have a lot in reserves. But you know, a good place to start there, friends, is to ask the Lord, would you give me your compassion? Would you give me your heart for those around you? The Samaritan was generous in empathy. Number two, he, he was generous with his time. Kind of already highlighted this a little bit, but look at verse 34. It says, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn. And that was a lot. It had to have been a lot of walking with this donkey. It was a steep incline. We know that from the road, no matter where he was. Who knows how long that took? Took care of the guy. The next day, he went back, checked in on the guy saying, when I return, I will help. When I used to read this story, this very famous story as a kid, I never noticed these details. I always just read it, you know, as a little guy thinking, oh yeah, of course this guy would help. But now I read it and be like, how did the Samaritan have the time? I mean, he had to have had a demanding schedule of his own and all the rest of it. But this guy was not just taking care of this guy, he was generous in taking care of his time. And so friends, we've got to look for ways. It might be a struggle in the Silicon Valley, we've got to look for ways. What ways can we look to love and care for those around us? I had a fun uh, coffee with, a, with a, one of the entrepreneurs at Current this last week. And we were talking about how, so we were talking about how, I mean, I was talking about how I was busy. He's talking about how I was busy. It's just, you know, we're in Silicon Valley. It's a lot of conversations go that way. And he was talking about how, like, you know, we've been thinking about it. He and his wife have been thinking about, like, how can we have an impact given, given this? And he, he shared how they had had an Easter meal. And I was just like, that, that's so cool. He's like, he's like, you know, for a lot of these folks, like, it, it, it could have very well been awkward for them, this Christian thing. You know, our, our employees come to this Christian thing, but we just felt like, this, could this be something? Could he? He's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the impact. And I just thought about that. I was like, and a lot of actually what went through my head is thinking about how for Cindy, you know, she's doing corporate world stuff. A lot of that was doing things like that to open a door to actually be a friend and neighbor when the occasion occurred or arise. To, to, to put in the time to build a relationship, to have a meal, do something to have a relationship be there so that when there is a need, there's, a way to meet it, care for people. So there's, there's different ways that we can look to love and care for people. And by the way, you know, Jesus is talking about this very, you know, I would say kind of extreme example of this guy who's, you know, robbed by, you know, robbers and left beaten on the side, half dead. You know, of course, if that kind of need occurs, okay, we've got to think about that. But also, like, there's, there's a starving relational need here in the Silicon Valley. There's all sorts of needs that we can meet. Samaritan was generous in empathy, in time. And then number three, he was generous with his resources, of course. Notice all these details in verses 34 and 35. He went to this man and bandaged him. Of course, folks didn't roll around those days with first aid kits. So he almost certainly took some, you know, cloth from his own, fabric from his own clothes to do this. Uh, he poured oil and wine, uh, which were far less easy to come by in those days. Uh, then he put the man on his own donkey, of course, paid for an inn. The next day gave two denarii, which was essentially two days wages, uh, two days wages, and then offered to reimburse even more if any need should arise. Again, he wasn't just taking care of this guy. He was doing so generously with his resources. This point alone could be its own sermon. So allow me just to kind of summarize <laughs> in a way. The scriptures are clear that, our re when it comes to our resources, we are not owners, we are stewards. Every good and perfect gift is from above. 
whatever we have, whatever we gain, whatever we earn is ultimately because of God and for God. We are not owners, we are stewards. And so the question is, how can we steward that for his kingdom? And if there's a command to follow, you would think it would be love your neighbor. So the question becomes, how can we steward our resources? And by the way, here in Silicon Valley, which tend to be more substantially than the average, how can we steward that for the sake of helping and loving others? I was talking to a... Um, one of the gals here at Current last week, uh, totally unrelated to today's message, but I, at the end of this conversation, it's like, this, this might come to a sermon near you type deal. And she was sharing, she was sharing how uh, growing up, she went to a church where they had her write a paper that uh, talked about uh, her, her master, mate, and mission. And she skipped over the first two. She said, when I wrote about the mission, she said, my mission I wrote was to throw parties in life. And she told me that, I started to smile. I was like, tell me more about that. She said, well, and she wasn't smiling at this point. She said, well, actually, the church didn't receive that super well. They started to look at me and, and, and articulate, hey, I'm not sure that's what a Christian thing to do. Now I'm really smiling. I'm like, so, so why do you feel like that's your mission? She's like, because I feel like I have all these people who don't know Jesus in my life, all these friends that I want to throw parties for and bring my friends, in this case from current, so that they can come and meet each other and maybe for my friends who don't know Jesus, see the attractive love of God in them. And I'm like, that's essentially our mission. It's our vision here at current. That's an incredible mission. I mean, think about that. I mean, let's talk about a win-win. We've got resources you use them to throw parties and help people maybe see the attractive love of Jesus. There's different ways we can go about it. I mean, one of the ways we do this, of course, as a church, it's such an honor and privilege to get to do this with you, church family, is to do our impact initiative at the end of the year. We raise funds to give to the, the community and, and our neighbors. We get to together meet uh, uh, physical and spiritual needs in the community. We're talking helping folks like uh, foster kids and families, survivors of human trafficking, uh, those who are homeless and under-resourced is an incredible privilege. So Jesus shook things up when he answered, who is my neighbor? When he lifted up the example of the Samaritan and he shared how we were to go about to do that, when we were to be generous with our time, with our empathy, with our, with our resources. Um, and then he ended, go and do likewise. Okay? But we can't end the sermon there because there's more going on. There's, there's an undercurrent, if you will, uh, that we need to consider. Because what was going on was Jesus wasn't just saying, okay, here, go and do this. Remember back when the, the expert of the law asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus flipped the question back to him and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And essentially he was smug in that answer. Check, I'm doing that. But really now, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Anybody do that perfectly during the first worship set? Like there's just no way. Even for a short period of time, it's just like, but he was just like, okay, and love your neighbor. And Jesus had to tell a story to get at his heart. He was just trying to say, well, give me the box. I can check that one too. Jesus was like, no, 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 Let me share a story. And he gives this story of the Samaritan being the example. And did you notice at the end, if you heard, when you heard it read earlier, that when Jesus asked the question, so which of the three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these was the neighbor to the other? And the dude couldn't even say the Samaritan in his answer. He said the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't pull himself to say the Samaritan. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was showing him, showing us, 
that not only could he not do any of the stuff that he was saying he could do to inherit eternal life, he, he was failing miserably at it. And that's you and me. Now, the good news is the guy did have one thing right in his question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He did realize, if not fully, that it, had, it came down to something he needed to receive from the outside. What, he, what Jesus was doing with his story, with him, for us, it's helping him see that he needed to receive something from the outside. He needed to receive Jesus. How, how does that work? Well, Jesus is the good and true neighbor. The only good and true neighbor. How? He left heaven itself to live among us. The son of God taking on flesh. To live literally as our neighbor. Whether we be Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, you name it. And you want to talk about empathy? I mean, there are very few stories where it doesn't show real quickly on somewhere in there where it doesn't say, geez, had compassion for those. When he was being beaten and crucified, what did he cry out? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. You talk about empathy. And then you talk about time. Man, I would not have wanted to have been one of those seminary students at Princeton in that study. But you know what? Jesus was interrupted all the time, not on a way to the talk, in middle of talks. And what would he do? He'd stop everything to focus his fullest attention on that individual talking to them, meeting them, their needs. And you talk about resources. Jesus left limitless resources in heaven to come and give us something eternally greater than that. What was that? His life. It's so amazing to me, you know, this little, Jesus telling this story of how this man who was beaten by robbers was left stripped of his clothes, beaten and left for dead. That's, that's a good description of Jesus. He was Stripped of his clothes, beaten, and not just left for dead, he was killed. Not at the hands of robbers, but spiritually speaking, by you and me. And he came to be the good and true neighbor for you and me. This is so important. First of all, if you're here and you've never received Jesus, this is the promise of, of, of eternal life for you. That Jesus came to justify you when you can't justify yourself. To bring you back into a right relationship with God. He has done for you through living a perfect life and then dying on the cross for the penalty of your sins and mine, what you cannot do for yourself, what I can't do for myself. And if you receive him, the promise is to all those who believe on him, who receive him, give the right, he gives the right to become children of God. You can receive him today. That is the good news. That is how you, eternal, you inherit eternal life. But the second part of that meaning, because when he says eternal life, it's not just talking about the next life, Bible scholars tell us. It also talks about life here and now. And so you're gonna talk about being a good neighbor and starting to live out maybe a little bit of what Jesus is talking about, you need to receive that from him too. Because to the degree that you and I begin to see him as our good and true neighbors, to the degree we can begin to offer that to others. And when we fail, he, the good neighbor, can pick us up and call us back to it. That is our call. And, you know, I think about that group of pastors in Denver who had the epiphany, epiphany, <laughs> That it really is, when it ultimately comes down to it, an investment of being good neighbors that can change things, have a movement. Friends, you think about the impact we begin to lead into this just a little bit more, each of us, in Silicon Valley. So let us think about, with his help, how we can go and do likewise this week. Let's pray. Father, what a challenging yet beautiful teaching. And what a timely one, Father, because we look around the world and we see so much pain, strife, division, all of it. We're so thankful, though, that it's not dependent on us being good neighbors so much as it is your love shining through us. And so, Father, would you do that? Forgive us for how we don't step into things. Forgive me. 
And would you help us increasingly, because of the love and model of, of Jesus, the good and true neighbor, help us do this more and more and in community. We pray this in his name. Amen.